across the United States. The real issues you don't hear about elsewhere. Focusing on what matters to you and your neighbors. Welcome to Resist Bot Live. Good afternoon. It is February 20th, 2022. I'm Melanie Dion, and this is Resist Bot Live. Welcome. Last week, we talked about defunding the police, and one of the cities we brought up is Chicago. Chicago's budget is $2,581,272 for substance abuse. That is what Chicago spends in half a day of policing. What we want to talk about is why this is not working, what we actually mean when we talk about justice reform, transformation, restorative justice, and today's topic, prison abolition and voter restoration. Of course, I'm not going to be the only person talking. We're going to have our panel. But before we get started, I just want to remind you that we're here every Sunday at 1 p.m. Eastern. You can find us on Twitter, Twitch, YouTube, and Facebook. If you're listening to us in Podcastville, you're going to catch us every Monday, wherever your favorite podcast is. So be sure to go to resistbot.live and subscribe. If you want to be part of today's conversation, if you're in Facebook, you are more than welcome to send comments and we'll be sure to respond and possibly get your comment on the air. So today we are going to talk about the racial disparities in our justice system and the abuses that incarcerated people have to endure. So we are going to start bringing up our regular panelists. First, we have the wonderful Athena Foulet. Aloha, Kako. Good day, everyone. Greetings from Washington, D.C. Good to see you, Mel. How's it going? Good to see you as always. It's going good. I, I feel like I say this every week. It's going to be a surprise. I'm excited to have this conversation. I know you've never heard that before. It's an important discussion. And I love that we are, we're weaving a thread for everybody to understand how this is all interconnected and all related to one another. So last week's discussion about funding of the police and what sort of the trigger word of defunding the police and how that actually really is more about reallocating funding to resources that actually do keep us safe circles back around to this idea of like, what keeps us safe? Investing in communities, investing in resources that support communities. So today is a very important part of that. And that also that piece about voting restoration, because there's a lot going on about voter suppression and gerrymandering and all of that, which we've addressed, I feel, in a couple of our episodes too. But the concept of restoration of voting access and abilities is, is going to be critical for especially in a, a midterm year. And this topic is so important because when we start talking about voters' rights, formerly incarcerated people get left out of the conversation. It's not even a, it, it's not even a prevalent discussion. I won't say that it's never discussed, but it doesn't have the place that it needs to be discussed. That does not come up under the topic of suppression. But in 2020, there were something like 5.2 million people who were locked out of the voting process. So this is something that we have to discuss more and get into what the actual conversation is when you just hear defund the police or prison abolition. I'm going to also bring up our homegirl, Susan, who is back with us. Hey, Susan. Welcome back. Hi there. Thank you. I'm glad to be back. Personally, I'm really excited about this conversation. For someone like me, I've spent 30 years in the state court system and I've spent a ridiculous amount of time in courtrooms. And I always thought I understood what the criminal justice system was about. And it wasn't until I started looking at this topic and I read Michelle Alexander's book, The New Jim Crow, back in 2010, that I understood the inherent oppression that is just, it's not just built into our criminal justice system, but that the criminal justice system is built on it for somebody who spent the number of years I have in the courtroom to not see and understand the import of this never ending line of people of color coming through the courtrooms. So I think that this is a really important conversation. I think it's important that we understand the foundations of our criminal justice system that supports, furthers, maintains this racial oppression. And so I'm really looking forward to hearing from our guests today. Absolutely. And so we are joined again this week. And I'm going to use the word again. If we turned excited into a drinking game on this show, we die. 
But I'm excited. I'm excited that we have our guest, a returning guest from last week, Rhea Thompson Washington. Hello, Rhea. Greetings and salutations. Hey, y'all. How y'all doing? Fantastic. Thank you for joining us again. Thank you for having me. You're versed in both of these conversations, abolition and voter restoration. So let's talk. I like to start with the simple and what it means when we talk about prison abolition. The, can you elaborate a bit on the concept of prison abolition for us? Well, for me, whenever I start thinking about what is prison abolition or trying to explain it to people, I start with defining what the prison industrial complex is. Critical Resistance, which is an organization dedicated to prison abolition and the prison, the abolition of the prison industrial complex, describes um, the PIC as a term to describe like overlapping entrance of government and industry that uses surveillance, policing and imprisonment as solutions to economic, social and political problems. And so when we think of the way that the prison industrial complex permeates throughout everything that we touch um, or everything in our lives, we then have to think about why it's important and necessary to consider constructing why abolition and abolition i think is like the goal of it's a political vision um it's a goal of like eliminating prison police surveillance of the state and trying to create you know lasting alternatives to punishment and imprisonment when we talk about these alternatives one of the things and we talked about last week how defund the police got cut off at the knees i remember barack obama he said well you lost people when you said defund the police as though it was oversimplified which would be fine if barack obama did not go to Harvard and understand the concept of digging deeper into things that he hears. And I'm saying that because this is a way to shut down more radicalized thinking. This is a way to shut down reform. This is a way to shut down justice transformation. Because when you cut off uh, prison abolition, where are they going to go? You don't get into the deeper conversation. If you're inclined to learn, then you do more, you learn more, and you speak on that. But if you're not, it gets cut off at, oh, well, they're just going to open the cell doors. And no, the, the concept is not to open every cell in Attica and send them to Africa. The concept is, how do we get to this point? And I think that is the, I appreciated last week when you said abolitionists don't have all the answers. And I think a lot of us, including me, as somebody who is very interested and invested in this topic, kind of struggle with that because I, I have that, well, what is next? And when you dig deeper, you realize that prison abolition is a goal. Prison abolition is where we're getting to. And the, the point of abolitionists is to share, these are the steps, these are the things we need to work through to see if we can change this carceral system in a way that's manageable. So I want to talk more about that. And I would love if everybody could come up because I would love all of us to, to weigh in on this. We have all been subject or live with a concern as women. We live with this concern of personal harm. Usually when we talk about protection or, or needing protection, it, we're the ones who often need it first, but or most often. But it's been proven that it's not, it has not been an effective method. It does not, having a prison system has not stopped women from being abused, children from being abused, nor has it done anything for the systems in there. It does not do anything to prepare someone to return to society. So I'd like to talk a little bit more about where we can start with abolition now. I read a book, a very good one. I actually read Abolition Feminism Now which I found interesting. There, there were a lot of interesting uh, points there. And one of the things that it brought out was the need for how often police are not responding to crime, how often they're responding to mental health care needs, directing traffic, even physical health care needs, they may show up. So in an abolitionist system, can you give sort of a snapshot on what, how some of these would be outsourced? Not outsourced but assign to other agencies that aren't the police. Yeah, so the idea is that, like, imagine if you called 911 because you witnessed someone having, like, maybe a mental health break. And instead of them sending the police 
to to that person, right? Where the police are not equipped to deal with someone who may be in the middle of a mental health break and somebody who's trying to harm themselves and someone who might appear like they're trying to harm others because they may not be in, in like control of their capacity, right? So the, having the police show up with weapons in an adversarial and hostile way oftentimes is not useful. What would be dope is if we called 911 and they say, what is your emergency? And you tell them what the emergency is and they say, okay, it sounds like, you know, a licensed therapist, we have these folks online, or it sounds like you need mental health um, support. So let's get adult care or children's youth, you know, like care where there's so many options or even for a car accident, for a car accident, right? Because you think about like, we don't need police in car accidents, but the reason that we have to have them there is because in order to get your insurance, like claim, right, you have to have a police report to be able to like make the claim. So we're involving police in things that have nothing to do with them. Two people and a mediator could settle that the exchange of that information. But instead we're having police come into all of these spaces that they're not equipped to deal with. They don't have to go through any advanced training and expecting them to be able to know how to handle situations when the role of policing is to uphold authority. It's not to take care of people, right? It's it's like the idea that police um, are supposed to protect and serve is a notion when they show up with their guns drawn. That doesn't make me feel safe. Most people I know don't feel safe when police are, are around or brought into the situation. And so thinking about what do we want when we call 911? What do we need when we call for help? Right. If you hear if somebody's having a domestic violence situation, they may not need police in that situation. What they may need is a mediator or a separator or somebody to help for passage out or separation. Like there's all kinds of ways in which we could be community members to each other without involving the police. But we've been, you know, socialized to think that the police are actually going to show up and help us. And that like nearly never happens. And someone almost always goes to jail. Laquan McDonald was killed when the officer showed up, 30 seconds, 30 seconds, no assessment. When Tamir Rice was killed, even less, I think it was, was it 12? It was something unconscionable. It was, it's, so there's no assessment. There's no, the skills that you need when there's a conflict that needs to be resolved, non-existent. I do want to make sure that we bring up some of the petitions that we have. Susan, can you let us know what our petitions are and make sure that we get those share with our audience? Sure, thank you. So we have three petitions currently. And the first one that I'm going to chat about is titled Defund and Demilitarize the Police. To further to Rhea's point about the training, so many of the law enforcement agencies around the country, they don't have any training whatsoever, much less training to deal with crisis situations. So, and then when they do, they come in guns blazing. It's a very militarized experience. So the first one was written by Arenaldis Castillo, and again, it's titled Defund and Demilitarize the Police. And really, it's asking to stop the militarization of our law enforcement agencies across the country. They get excess weaponry, you know, military weaponry. And, and, and that's just not that's just not how we should be responding to situations in crisis, people in crisis. So the call sign for that particular petition is U as in umbrella, F as in Frank, E as in Edward, P as in Peter, Q, G as in good. And so if you want to sign on to defund and to demilitarize the police, that's your call sign. The second one also speaks to defunding the police and it's called defund police fund communities. And that's further to Rhea's point again about you know looking to community resources for help as opposed to law enforcement. And so the call sign for that one is M is in Mary, G is in good, S is in Sam, N is in Nancy, J is in Jelly, F is in Frank. And so if you'd like to sign on to that one, that's the call sign. And then the third one that we have is regarding a piece of legislation that was introduced back in 2020 by, excuse me, it's called the Breathe Act. 
it. And what it's looking for is to institute changes to policing, pretrial detention, sentencing, and prosecution practices. And, you know, really looking at demilitarizing our neighborhoods again. And the call sign for that petition is F is in Frank, O, I is in ice cream, F is in Frank, K is in kitchen, E is in Edward. So if you'd like to sign on to that one, that's the call sign. And, you know, if any of these petitions don't have, don't make the statement that you want to make, you can turn any one of your letters to your legislatures into a petition. So if these three petitions don't say what you want to say, please feel free, write your letters to your legislatures and you can turn any one of them into a petition that you can and then invite your friends and family to sign on to and lobby your legislatures to look at this problem with law enforcement and the criminal justice system and really try to affect change. And yeah, and absolutely. And we could definitely use more, uh, use more that focus specifically on prisons. One of the things that I wanted to bring up about the prison system, about our carceral justice system is how our good, good friend, Velissa Thompson says that whenever we are looking at a social issue, we need to look at where the component for disabled people lies. There's always a cross-section there. And she wrote an article, uh, I want to say a year back. She wrote an article last year, actually just a year ago, Understanding the Policing of Black Disabled Bodies for uh, AmericanProgress.org. And one of the things that she pointed out when we look at Laquan McDonald, Corinne Gaines, Freddie Gray, these were people who had special needs. These were people who fall under the category of disabled people. All of them murdered by the police. 50% of people killed by law enforcement are disabled. And then more than half of uh, disabled people in America will have been arrested by the time they're 28. This is not healthcare. This is not care. This is not anything that fosters a society. If anything, it further marginalizes people who already need help. And shifting from our more vulnerable folks when we start talking about our students, our young people. I live in New Orleans and, I, and, and I, I'd love for us to really talk about the brass tacks of this. And again, everybody is welcome to weigh in, but I live in New Orleans where we do have a significant crime problem. Significant. And a large part of it is they're perpetrated by young people. When you have these conversations about what's needed, it's police police. And we ignore how recreation has been eviscerated. We ignore how school board budgets have been eviscerated. We ignore how I live in New Orleans East, just like there's a food desert, there's also nothing for them to do. We talked before about a failure of imagination, Rhea, and how it's not a personal failure. It's a systemic failure. There was a group in Chicago, a group of educators. Abolition is kind of, is taking hold among the educator community because they realized these kids have, they have more nonsense than libraries. They're missing the things that they need. They're not receiving those. They see that there's a shortfall in the education budget. How do we square that circle when we're dealing with that? What can we do as citizens, as parents to start early in abolition work from a, I would say when we look at risk, like those younger teens, those teen young adults, what can we do, Rhea, that would be a help community-wise or even something that you implement yourself? Yeah, so I think one of the things that would be really helpful and, and something that we know that reduces the recidivism rate of people like who have gotten involved or ended up in, in the court system and ending up back in the court system, right, is a restorative or transformative justice model. And what that looks like is an opportunity for the person who was harmed and the person who has done the harm to come together and have a conversation mediated by someone who's not involved, but also other community members, like the person, you know, people's families, just so that the conversations could be had, like your action, like that you did, had these rippling effects. And I think that when we employ those type of, and I've also, you know, done some research on this when I was like, you know, in undergrad, this is what I was like studying, right? I'm like, yay, let's find out how, what we can do to reduce the rates of recidivism, how there are different, it really depends on the county that you live in, 
how much money that county has and what they're doing to do these diversion programs. And that's not consistent across the board. And, and it also depends on numerous like economic indicators, race, gender, like all of that drives these, the factors that determine whether or not you can get into a program that is diversion. And so we know that's not equal, right? That's not equitable when we're talking about how people are dealing with situations that arise. And then the other thing, as I mentioned last week, and, and like something that's really, you know, near and dear to my heart is how we think about what is our desire to punitively punish people when we can help create, say, okay, look, this harm, you created this harm and this harm had these particular effects. And in order for you to help fix or solve this harm, you need to take these steps, right? You have to agree like that what you did was harmful, take these steps to, to mitigate that harm as much as possible, apologize to the people that have been injured, and then like not throw people away, not say, oh, you've done something wrong. And so we're gonna cast you out to society. We're gonna go put you in a cage somewhere as a child and expect you to come out as an adult, having been ready to socialize into the community. And then what we're also gonna do is take away your opportunity to get employment because if you have any type of criminal record, it's often harder to find jobs. We're going to eliminate the options for you to be able to have housing in places that are safe and communities that you know you might be able to, to thrive in, right? That might have more resources. And then we're going to just continue to stack things against you. And so it's like, what is the goal of prison? What is the goal of jail? It's not to to allow people to have the opportunity to sit and be penitent and come back out and be members of society. It's to hold people, you know, accountable and punish people. But we're using like outdated standards and methods of torture really to do that now. And so I just think that when we think about why? Why do we want to, like, how do we engage in something that looks different? Transformative justice models are there. You know, other countries, uh, some places around this country, like, actually employ them, like in Broward County, they employ those kinds of restorative justice models, and they work, and they reduce recidivism. But they're not going to do that in a place like Chicago. They're not going to do that in a place like New York, right? And and the reason they're not is because there's too much money to be made off of people going through the system. And at the end of the day, since we're still, you know, capitalist-based society, there's no way that we're going to care about people more than the cost it takes to put them in jail. Because I, I know it's less to care for people than it is to cost to, to pay for people to be in jail. And it depends on who is where. Like last week we talked about the when we looked at police scorecard, we looked at somewhere like Chicago that is uh, majority black and brown, and then we looked at somewhere like Blaine, Minnesota. They were scored the best, but when you dig deeper, you see okay, yeah, but it's also a, a town that's seventy nine, seventy eight percent white. So you have to read between those lines. I just wanted to say, you know, too, this is not just an adult court problem. You see this, some of the most heartbreaking hearings I've ever been in were juvenile delinquency. And kids are committing crimes, they're coming before the court, and the court isn't looking at what's going on necessarily in that child's home and what brought that child before the court in the first place. It's not just happening with adults. You know, we've got specialty courts here in Florida, drug court, mental health court, and there is a drug court for juveniles. I think what Rhea is saying, you know, needs to start all the way down in juvenile court with the kids that are coming before the judges on the crimes that they commit. And, you know, so it's not just an adult problem. Can I just say like, the for, so for me, it's also like, the way that we start changing the way we think about these conversations is even in the language, right? Like I don't use the word felon in, in my vocabulary because I think of formerly incarcerated people as people who have experienced the, the violence and the harm of the system. And so for me, it's important to lift that up. And similarly, I try not to use words like crime and like saying that people have done things like that because I think that, again, to your point, Susan, when we're talking about what these kids oftentimes are doing. And this is like, my wife was a former juvenile probation and parole officer. And so like, I actually saw this firsthand with her and I actually am kind of one of the reasons she's no longer doing that work and is now an abolitionist and out of that system. But, but I saw like actual kids who are having 
problems like you mentioned at home. And so the way that they're acting out is not actually their desire to commit a crime, right? It's a response to what it is that's happening around them in their community. It's a response to not having resources, or as Mel said, not having things to do, right? And not being able to work, like all, ki- all kinds of reasons. But then we characterize their behavior as crime and ascribe the label of criminals to them. And so there's nowhere for them to go from there, right? And so I think that we should be mindful, like when we're even having these conversations of the language that we're using and like how we're describing the people that we're talking about so that we're not like reinforcing unknowingly those like stereotypes of people, right? And so I just want to name that. Excellent point. Excellent point. You're 100% correct. Words matter. Yeah. Absolutely. One of the things, too, I want to talk about just a bit before we kind of, and this is going to lead us as a segue into our next point is, or our next topic, is community investment, investment in society. And there was a very important point. I'm going to keep going back to this book because I just finished it. But (laughs) there was a very important point in abolition feminism now and how there were critical resistance organizers who were very focused not only on abolition, but making sure that incarcerated people were a part of the process. Because we want to make sure that we're not, this isn't a savior work, it's a societal work. And so how did you have tactics or recommendations on making sure that the people that we want to help are part of it? I mean, outside of just asking questions, but in in the fundamental layers of abolition work, what was, or did you have sort of an experience on how to make sure that it's not just these aren't subjects and, and, and I'm swooping in to help. These are, we are working together. Yeah. Abolition is survivor led work, right? Abolition is led by the people who have experienced it. And those are the people who experienced the the violence and harm of the prison industrial complex. And to that end, many of us have, right? Like, I don't think anyone at this point doesn't know someone who has been in prison, been in jail, even just been involved in the system. And again, as we talked about earlier, there's so many ways that can happen just even accidentally. And I think that we should listen to the people who are experiencing the harm and listen to what it is that they're saying that they need that would make them feel safe. Because the thing is, is that we have not empowered people who are surviving this violence to know that they are safe. We're not empowering them to know that they are safe, that they're loved, that they're cared for, that we want them to be able to recover and like be stronger and move on. We, we don't do that. We often find ways to blame people and create all kinds of like sub harms, creating other people victims and repeating the same like systems that and cycles that got us there. And so I think that what folks should really do is try to make sure that we're listening to the people who are at the core of this. The people often talk, when we're talking about like, we're gonna get rid of prisons. Like me, I'm like, let's shut them down like today and we'll figure out what to do later, right? And I, and I realize that's scary for some people, but I think that if we, people's response is always, well, what about the rapist, right? What about the bad guys? And it's like, I don't know if you realize what's happening, but the current system is not preventing rapists. Like, and also only like less than 30% of rape victims actually even report that they're being happened. And then when we talk about how, you know, rape is occurring and happening by people who are generally like know each other in close proximity, it's like, there are so many layers, but we can't just, throw somebody away and say, we're gonna let, you know, being in this incredibly violent situation where you can be abused by not only the system or your lack of knowledge of it, which is what happens, right? But also other people who have been preyed upon in the same system and we're just creating larger and larger, you know, more violent harm and, and violent offenders and things like that. So it's just, I'm always, I, think that people who have been directly impacted are the people who I take direction from. And I myself have been directly impacted. I have, And so I want to hear from people whose experiences have led them to be thoughtful about what restitution looks like, right? And not just being like about money, but what does it look like to be made whole again? And, and, and empowering people to know that they can do that. 
So let's get into that a little bit because we're we're talking about people who have already been. Let's talk about people who have already been incarcerated and now they have to come back. When we know that prison is not prison has not necessarily prepared them to to reenter society. What are some of the resources that formerly incarcerated people can avail themselves of? And then leading into that, if you can, from there, go a bit into what voter restoration looks like, including the accessibility of it, if you don't mind, if I'm not like giving you too much. Sure. So with regards to like, what are the resources that folks have access to, right? On one hand, like if you're looking for resources from government agencies, there are zero few because, because again, the once the um, state has labeled you a criminal, that they you are a someone who can be discarded, thrown away. They no longer care about your well-being. There are state and city-specific organizations that do this work. One comes to mind is New Orleans has vo- Voice of the Experienced, right? And that's a vote. And so they are a civic engagement group that is created of formerly incarcerated people and their families, right? And one of the things that they do is um, they register voter registration of folks. They they actually go to um, places where you might be going to see your family member who's currently incarcerated. So they have voter registration drives outside of prisons and jails so that not only the people who work there, but also the people who are going to visit their family members realize how important it is for you to participate in the process of voting if you're able to, so that you can help have impact on the person whose life you care about on the inside of that building. So Voice of the Experience comes to mind, they're a dope organization. But then there's also like organizations in most major cities that work on some type of like restoration. A lot of them, I can't, I don't like, it would depend on the city if you, if you want something specific. And so what folks need to do is again, find those folks who are doing that voter, excuse me, that restorations right. Because what happens is when people come back and they don't have access to resources, then what is it that they're supposed to do to be able to survive? You're literally saying that I don't care, you know, what you do. And if you show up back in front of me, I'm going to throw the book at you maybe even harder than last time because you don't deserve this freedom, right? But we take away people's opportunity. So it's what people can do to support that is find these organizations who are doing the the restoration rights work, be it making sure that people can get housing, be it like ban the box initiatives where people are trying to get the box on job applications that ask if you have previously been incarcerated, removed and getting those questions removed because we want to, you know, value people on the merits. And then also because we recognize that those questions are specifically to eliminate people and that they only have that eliminating effect when they are likely brown or black people, right? Because white people who have been to jail still are employed at higher rates, still have access to creating higher wealth. Like, mm, I'm gonna put that in, go that way. But you know, it, it gets, it's all so layered and related. And that's the thing. That's why there's no solve because it's not one. We always go back to how this is baked. This cake is baked with racism. Quoting the book again, Rose Brass talked about asking the other question. They quoted that. So where's the, if I see this, where is that? If I see homophobia, where's the class interest? If I see transphobia, where's the misogyny? Like finding those connected things. So when we're looking at this carceral system, it's always just like, find where the racism is. It's not even if I see it, it's, you know, or when I, no, we know it's in there because this is what is baked into it. And if, if I can add to that, it's also this idea of the binary. We're obsessed with the binary in this culture. We have right or wrong, good or bad, black or white, and that's never the case. That's as soon as we can start to see the grades of these issues, as Rhea pointed out, we might not have the immediate solution right now, but we need to understand that it's gonna take steps to get there. So anything that we can do, I feel as a society to just deprogram ourselves from understanding that there's only two options, whatever it might be, or there are only two factors that need to be considered, I think will help foster a better understanding and better approaches to these issues. Absolutely. I have a question for you, Rhea, about voter restoration in terms of the accessibility of it. And I'm saying this as somebody who's learning about the process of voter restoration and just thinking about somebody. I'm someone who's 
fairly decent about researching and looking up things. And I came up against some sort of like, sometimes brick walls are just kind of like questions that weren't completely answered or were talked around. So I'm saying that to ask you, do states who offer restoration, is it a, I don't want to use the term easy, but is it accessible? So short answer, no. Long answer is absolutely not. Like what it, it, it's, 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 it's wild really. Right. Because like you go through this process and you're told that after you pay your debt to society, that you'll be able to have your right rights restored. And in some very, very few states it's automatic. And it really also depends on the type of crime that you were convicted of or, or what the charge was in some states. It is in most states, it is not an automatic thing. It's something that you have to petition the governor oftentimes sometimes the entire like legislative body of the state for example in mississippi you have to get two-thirds of both the house and the senate of the legislature in mississippi to be able to vote for your name personally so that you can have your rights restored so you can imagine how many times that how often that happens and to whom those rights restored are actually given to right and then and there's like states like in South Carolina. And traditionally, I will say that this, the southern states are where it's most difficult to get your rights restored. In South Carolina, you have to go through this process of filling out a bunch of paperwork or knowing, and then you, you have to go register to vote. But if you don't know that, you fill out the paperwork, you do the whole process, and then you just show up on election day thinking that you can vote, but you can't because you haven't registered to vote. And now it's too late on election day because what we do is we make it incredibly hard for people to participate in the process so that we can exclude people who don't actually understand what's happening or don't have all of the information. But then uh, the restoration of rights also makes me think about like how Florida, how the people of Florida overwhelmingly overwhelmingly voted to restore the rights of over like of millions of people. 1.4 million people. The the state, you know, Governor DeSantis and cronies decided that they were not going to allow that many people to have their you know rights restored and then created this process of well they have to pay their fines they have to do that like they added extra hoops because it it actually would have given progressives a majority to have all of these people's rights restored and so the thing is is that like again it goes back to the layers it's this is not just about keeping people in cages it's also about keeping people from participating declaring that people are like black people were certain like three-fifths of a whole person means that then they were able to have less of a vote in the state and what happened in the state and so it all goes back to making sure that black people and people of color have less representation making sure you can't participate in the process if you should end up in the system that is nearly that is like grabbing at you from every stage of your life right like from a little child and you happen to get caught in that that web then you have to spend the rest of your life trying to get out of it and and trying to show that you've been accountable enough to be able to be back in society and when you finally do that you realize, okay, now I, you know, I'm gonna try to register to vote. And like the few women that we have seen most recently who have gone to register to vote, not knowing that they were not able to vote, they're getting six years in jail. To compare that, when we think about justice, we look at Kim Potter, who was just sentenced for killing someone and got 24 months. So again, this system is what it is. And it's not us reacting to things that aren't there. They're in our faces. And But I want to just dip a little bit into how it is easy to ignore and, and the why it is easy to, to ignore abolition work and kind of put it on the side. And it's a very simple answer. The majority of the people behind this work are queer women of color. So some of the easiest women to, we're erratic, we're irrational, we're Marxist, we're idealistic, which yes, I'm very, I'm very idealistic about my safety. I am very idealistic about my safety. I am idealistic that when I go outside and do things, I'm going to be able to come back home and be safe. Since we're already marginalized, we're already ignored. It's very easy to kind of to to poo-poo the work. And so we have these initiatives that 
will gain speed and gain ground. But since we're dealing with people, you know, just individual people who don't necessarily have power. And then we have, now we're in this phase where there's a lot of lip service. There's a lot of appearance of of doing good. There are police, there are police departments that have restorative justice departments and offices, but they're not there to actually serve. They don't actually serve. They're still serving the interests of the agency that they're housed in. And that's always going to be the police. This will always be the priority when we look at these things. Did you see earlier this week, I think it was again in New York, some police were like, they had a setup. It was three police officers and they showed how they were caught this ring of people who were like stealing like baby food and formula and all. And they had this like whole display. And it's like, you're proud that somebody was out here trying to get things that they can't, they don't have access to probably for a myriad of reasons. Why is it that we don't want to answer the question? Why do people need help? What can we do to support them? And watching the discourse around that is very interesting because I, I definitely, I did see that and I saw people commenting and it was like, well, why did they need so much Mucinex? Because it's, it's February, girl. These are the questions we ask. I'm sorry, people who shoplift don't necessarily treat it like a shopping list. Like you're going to do that in bulk. There's an implication there that something was going to be done to the Mucinex to develop drugs. And again, it's to this back to this concept that like people are stealing to do bad things like no people in many cases are stealing because they have no choice and yet the narrative that is being spun they don't need that much mucinex because they're expecting some kind of drug <laughs> cartel factory happening in the or how about it's a global pandemic and like in the you know you might need an expectorant right like if you happen to be sick i don't know i just why do we why don't we think about that? Like, why don't we think about how to help people get those those needs met? It goes back to that old saying where the cruelty is the point. And that's why we will have this conversation and last week's conversation and next week's conversation, because the key is always to cut off the discussion at the root. If I cut off defund the police, if I cut off abortion, if I cut off prison abolition, if I cut off voter restoration and why it's so difficult, I don't have to get into actually fixing it. I don't have to get into why this is keeping, this is to the advantage of just one shrinking group of people. And it also removes yourself from the accountability of it all as well. And that I think is key. We are so quick to say that's somebody else's role or this is, well, I'm not the one who needs Mucinex right now. So why should I care that others need it? And I think at the root of this capitalist society, that's what it's about. It's, it's you know, me, myself, and I, that's not my experience, so it can't possibly be true. We need to start breaking that down or keep breaking it down. That's, that's not the case. We are, we are one in, in, in our earthly experiences. And yes, some people have that expression about we're all in the same boat. No, we're all in the same storm, but we're in very different boats, everybody. And it, it comes down to how you feel about the concept of us taking care of one of one another, how you feel about the concept of community responsibility, because we all do have it. And the people who have more, we are responsible for those who have less. We, we, we absolutely are. And it's, it should not be a debate point because we all have needs. It does not matter how many bootstraps you think you have. We all have needs. We all have to lean on people. And so I think that is kind of where we should, where we can leave it now. Actually, I think I want to hear from you guys. Where can we find you, Rhea? What are you, what is your eye on in the news right now? Any actions we should be looking at, looking into? Yeah, so um, I do a lot of work around protester support also, and it's getting to, it's about to be protest season out in the streets. And I'm going to be doing some Know Your Rights trainings and some talking about community organizing coming up. You can find me on Twitter at M-R-S-D-U-B-Y-A-I-N-D-C, Miss W-N-D-C, and that's it. I'm out in these streets. And we appreciate you and love you for it. Thank you so much, Rhea. Athena. Hello. We are sort of wrapping up Black History Month. We have one more week of it, and I'm just starting to learn more and more. I, I love HBCUs. I visited a number of them in my day job, and I'm just really starting to dig a little bit deeper into their histories and realize that 
how many of them are named after white people and what some of these traditions and histories are. So I would, and there's been a, a wave of bomb threats and violence against these HBCUs and we need to protect these establishments. We need to celebrate these campuses and their graduates as well. So I would encourage folks to keep an eye out on that. And, and as we've said in almost every episode, listen to the people who are having these experiences and, and give them the floor to tell, express what their needs are so that we can better support them. I'm also keeping a close watch on the situation in Ukraine because y'all, if this country can find a way to go to war, they're going to go to war. So um, just keeping an eye on that. But it's to what we mentioned as well, yes, it's protest season is coming upon us. Support those who are trying to physically put themselves in spaces that are going to try to improve access and lives for folks in your city. So I second that. And otherwise, stay safe, everybody. We'll see you next time. Thanks, Athena. And Susan, welcome back. Would you like to give us some parting words? I would love to give some parting words. So I want to mention two things. One, our blog, we have a series of articles called Summer Thunder. In it's there, it's a three-part series that we have on our website. And in part three, about halfway through it, there is a resource list. If you, we've been talking about community resources and and other options beyond calling law enforcement for the different crises that we find ourselves in. There's a little toolkit that was created by a young lady named Ray, and that is in part three of the Summer Thunder article series. And it gives you some options on whatever situation you find yourself in that you may think law enforcement is the answer. There may be another answer in your community. So I encourage you to take a look at that and plug it into the back of your mind if a situation arises where you think you need law enforcement to maybe consider a community resource instead. And with regard to the returning citizens, you know, here in Florida, we did, we voted almost 70% to restore the franchise to returning citizens. And our uh, GOP legislature, reading the room, knew that 1.4 million additional people on the voter rolls had the possibility of changing the political landscape in this state. And so they put some more roadblocks up. And so now, They've required that any returning citizen who's already served their time, if there are any court fees and fines that weren't paid, that those have to be paid in order to have their franchise restored to them. And one of the organizations here in the state of Florida that is really doing the very hard work in that area is the Florida Rights Restoration Coalition. And their website is Florida, spelled out, rrc.com. And it's led by Desmond Mead, who is an amazing individual. Um, I encourage you to read his story online as well. But, you know, they're fundraising for the fees and costs that the returning citizens have to pay in order to get the franchise. So I encourage you to take a look at their website as well. Thank you so much, Susan. So I want to thank all of you for joining us. This was a, it's an important conversation. I don't, I don't want to use the word excited again, but it's an important conversation. It was something that meant a lot to me having had my experiences, my experiences with my loved ones who have been incarcerated when many of them just needed help. I want to read something. I cannot recommend abolition feminism now enough for those who are just trying to get a basic understanding. If you're having an introductory understanding of prison abolition, I highly recommend this book. And I would like to uh, read this quote before we close out this part of the discussion from Rose Brass in a 2008 interview, she said a prerequisite to seeking any social change is the naming of it. In other words, even though the goal we, the goal we seek may be far away, unless we name it and fight for it today, it will never come. We know abolition will not happen today, even though some of us may want it, but it's a goal. It's something that we need to work for. And if we name it, and hold on to it. Nobody can take that from us. So I appreciate y'all joining us with this conversation. And we'll be back next Sunday at 1 p.m. for our conversation about critical race theory. I am going to do everything in my power to not say excited next week. So I'm going to say it this week. I'm excited to talk about this because this is just another one of those conversations. Um, This is what the fourth week in a row where we're having these conversations that have gotten cut off at the knees and we're not having it. We are going to discuss and be heard 
and listen to the people who are doing the work. So if you want to learn more about what we're doing at ResistBot, you can go to resist.bot. You can volunteer. You can donate. We have a wealth of things available to our monthly donors. And we have some new ones. So I would like to thank TK from Stanley, North Carolina, Margaret from Oakland, California, who is particularly passionate about the Movement Voter Project, Michael from Dayton, Ohio, who is interested in Medicare for All, Joan from Gloucester City, New Jersey. I'm believing Louisiana. It might be Gloucester. I'm not sure. But she is particularly interested in the For the People Act. And Stephen from Los Alamitos, California, who's doing a lot of work to preserve rooftop solar in California. So I want to thank you all. You can go to resist.bot and catch up with our, all of our wonderful blog articles that Susan Stutz writes for, her. So, writes for us. We're so glad to have her back this week. And the podcast will be up tomorrow. So if you are listening to us from Podcastville, hi, be sure to join the conversation by using the hashtag LiveBotters. And I would like to thank you all for joining us. And until then, see you next week. ResistBot Live originally airs as a live stream every Sunday at 1 p.m. Eastern on Twitch, YouTube, Twitter, and Facebook, and is brought to you by the same folks behind the chatbot. If you haven't used ResistBot before, it's simple iPhone users, go to resist.bot on the web and tap the iMessage button. Non-iPhone users, open your text messaging app and compose a new text message. For the phone number, type 50409. In the message field, type resist or any of the keywords you heard on the show. You can also direct message resistbot on Twitter or the Telegram app. For a printable keyword guide and more resources, visit our website at resist.bot. Our website has a complete guide to creating robust public policy or voter turnout campaigns, and we're here to support your activism. Email support at resist.bot if you need help getting started. ResistBot is a non-profit social welfare organization built by volunteers and supported by your donations. You can donate on our website or email volunteer at resist.bot if you want to join our team. ResistBot Live is moderated by Melanie Dion. Our regular panel includes Athena Foulet, Christine Liu, Susan Stutz, and Dr. Joseph Kuhill. Thank you for listening.